Is there a lot of shooting? Are there bodies all around? But people believed it. They really believed it that night. And I think of the ones who were begging us to get connections to their families, to their husbands, to mothers and fathers before the world came to an end so they could just tell them they loved them. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wicked Garden Podcast. I'm your host Mike, and tonight we have Witness G with us, and we're going to do a little piece on the War of the Worlds for you. Before we do, take care of some business. If you have a haunting, a UFO sighting, any kind of uh, crazy paranormal event, we would love to hear about it. Uh, there are a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, one of them is via email at wickedgardenpodcast at gmail.com. And another way is to give us a call on our hotline, which is 609-800-5130. And you can leave your contact information there and we'll get back to you. Also, if you can uh, consider sponsoring the podcast by joining our Patreon, that'd be great. Uh, We just recorded a great Patreon episode that I think everybody's going to love tonight. You know, it's not your usual information, right? We've got somebody who's a veteran and can uh, shed a little bit of light on some interesting subjects, and it's all about the UFO subject. So uh, that's a dollar a month, a dollar you'll never miss, 12 bucks a year. And you just go to uh, Patreon and you search on Wicked Garden Podcast and you sign up. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on a journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. All right, so War of the Worlds, interesting uh, event in history that uh, kind of changed the way media was used. And, you know, tonight what we're going to need you guys to do is kind of paint a picture in your head of what it was like in 1938. So this is really taking you back. But I think it's important to set the scene for why this was such a big event and why it was such a big issue. And after all, this is um, the event that sponsored a lot of modern horror. Blair Witch Project was basically uh, done off the idea of what happened with War of the Worlds. So what is War of the Worlds? So War of the Worlds was a radio broadcast, and it was done on October 30th, 1938. 
and it was the Mercury Theater starring Orson Welles. It was up against the Chase and Sanborn Hour, which was a much more popular radio show. And things weren't going good for Orson Welles. At that point, they didn't really have an audience. And he was trying to make a mark for himself. And he wanted to do something special for Halloween. So he got together with John Hausman. And they talked about what he would be able to do. And John Hausman had the War of the Worlds book on his bookshelf. He kind of suggested it to Wells. And Wells said, you want me to do this? This is boring. You know, just as a standalone play. So he kind of put his little special spin on it. Those guys uh, were with the Columbia Broadcasting System, and it was one-hour shows. They would come on at 8 o'clock at night, and once again, they were up against that Chase and Sam Bentwood-Born Hour, which was a much more popular show. So unless he came up with something really earth-shattering, it was going to get canceled. The medium of radio came in right 1920, 1923. And gee, I thought this was interesting when I was doing research for this. Do you know that TV came in in 1928? No. <laughs> it's pretty wild, right? But TV didn't get popular because of number one cost to transmit and the technology was really weak. So it, that didn't even come into play until after World War II because World War II also delayed it, TV. So even though these two mediums are like neck and neck, radio came in and kind of replaced the newspapers, right? Because that's the way you would either go see a live show um, you would go see some kind of play to be entertained or you would play a record, <laughs> you know, or something along those lines. And that's how you got entertained. And and here's this, this medium radio, but literally it's broadcasting into your living room. Right. And you can sit around and you can hear some music. You can catch the news, whatever, but it's real important to remember where the country was at that time. We had had the great depression and we were through that and things were just starting to get a little bit better. But at the same time, things were kind of falling apart over in Europe and Hitler was kind of coming to power and that was making a lot of people nervous. Uh, There was also a huge hurricane in 1938 um, and I did a little bit of research on that. It was the Great New England Hurricane of 1938. The highest gust of wind, this is crazy, was registered at 180 miles an hour. Uh, maximum recorded wind gusts 186 miles per hour at blue hill conservatory in massachusetts uh that was was quite a a a hurricane home it left sixty three thousand people homeless 700 people were dead uh peak wave height in gloucester was 50 feet peaks yeah peak storm storm surge was 17 feet in rhode island so basically rhode island was pretty much covered with water uh, homes and buildings destroyed approximately 8,900 homes. Trees, you're going to love this, 2 billion trees destroyed. Uh, boats lost or destroyed approximately 3,300. And the cost in 1938 dollars, think about that, 1938 dollars was $620 million. That's equivalent to approximately, yes, well. dude, that's $41 billion in today's money. Yeah, I've been watching the uh, Perry Mason remake on HBO. I don't know if you've looked at that. No, not yet. Yeah, it's taking place in 1936. So, I mean, every episode there's like they have things. For example, uh, the last episode I saw, they were eating five-cent hamburgers. So, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's a lot of money for back then. Yeah, it really a is. A lot of money. And that was just one of the things that went on. Uh, radio and newspapers are pretty much at war with each other. You also had, in 1937, you had the Hindenburg disaster. And, yeah. you know, I, I have a little bit of that. I told you I wasn't going to make you listen to this stuff, but I'm going to make you listen to this one. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I can get it to play here. Because this is going to come in. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship, but just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get this started. Get this started. It's flying. And it's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just funny. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just speeding around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people as friends are out there. So that's our tie-in with New Jersey, too. And you, my friend, because that took place at Lakehurst. Yeah, it did. A place that you're very familiar with. <laughs> so I did a lot of uh, PT out there at the memorial. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and you know, there's a, another show on the Hindenburg, and you know the conspiracy theories and the actual cause that follows that around to this day. It's it's still not settled as to what made that go off, but you know that actually didn't go out live on the radio. That was actually recorded, and it was recorded on a disc. So the, these guys used to take along these, they look like record players, but they literally were recording devices and they would record to a disc. Where that comes into play also with War of the Worlds was one of the actors that plays the actual uh, reporter in the radio broadcast, he uh, listened to the Hindenburg disaster beforehand because it was such a huge event that he wanted to you know, kind of imitate it. And you'll hear that when we get into actually playing pieces of the broadcast. So yeah, there's, you know what? I, I didn't know that tidbit of information. I didn't come across that in my research, but uh, man, now that you said it, it's, it's super apparent. Yeah. Yeah. It really will jump right out at you, at you when you hear it. So, you know, that's our, another tie in with Jersey as well as, you know, the actual landing spot of the aliens. And more importantly than anything, one of the things that happened, early, like a month earlier than this broadcast was CBS had also sent a news team overseas to cover what they called the crisis in Europe. So it's the rise of Hitler. And this happens like a month before this. And because there was no satellite communication system yet, what happened was the CBS team was forced to report only when a communication was available, you know, overseas cables. There literally was cables running on the bottom of the ocean that used to, you know, get this information back and forth. That's how it was, right? And there was only so much capability on those cables. So they had to call in when they could call in. So that led to what we now look at all the time, if you think about OJ and with the live break-ins. So the live break-in was actually something that was done, not intentionally, but was done out of necessity originally. 
And it was done by Edward R. Murrow and his team over there for CBS. So it was the CBS news team. And that's the way they had to get the information back to everybody is they would literally call in and the radio would say, you know, we have this breaking story from Europe and let's check in with the team. So that's where that all came from, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. So you got all this paranoia about what's going on in Europe. You know, the country's just healing from, you know, let's be honest, the First World War wasn't that long ago. And the First World War was barbaric. It's trench fighting and gases. And so people yeah. have this all in the back of their head. You know, it's the, the country's basically recovering, but it's a ticking time bomb. So it was a perfect opportunity for Orson Welles, a, a genius, to exploit that. One of the things that it, I wanted to talk about, too, was Edward R. Murrow himself and those live break-ins. And I got one of those. I wanted to play that, too. Once again, I'm lying to G. I said I wasn't going to play any of this stuff, but we're going to play this now. No and I worries. Want, yeah, I want you guys to hear this because this was something that was absolutely unprecedented back in the day. You didn't have this kind of reporting. This was one of those call-ins, and this is a little bit of what that sounded like. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. For reasons of national as well as personal security, I am unable to tell you the exact location from which I'm speaking. Off to my left, far away in the distance, I can see just that faint red angry snap of anti-aircraft bursts against this steel blue sky. But the guns are so far away that it's impossible to hear them from this location. About five minutes ago, the guns in the immediate vicinity were working. I can look across just at a building not far away and see something that looks like a splash of white paint down the side. And I know from daylight observation that about a quarter of that building has disappeared, hit by a bomb the other night. Streets fan out in all directions from here, and down on one street I can see a single red light and just faintly the outline of a sign standing in the middle of the street. And again, I know what that sign says because I saw it this afternoon. It says, danger, unexploded bomb. So you can hear there, he never gets excited. He stays calm, stays cool, stays collected. But he's relaying this horrible information to you, right? And, you know, he's basically telling you how bad it is over there. But at the same time, he always winds up his reports reassuring everybody. You know, like, hey, things are going to be all right. So here's another piece of this clip, and I think it's interesting to listen to this. But at the moment, in the central area, everything is quiet. More searchlights spring up over on my right. I think probably in a minute we shall have the sound of guns in the immediate vicinity. The lights are swinging over in this general direction now. You'll hear two explosions. Just there they are. This was unprecedented. People were reading newspapers and getting news that was seven, eight, nine, ten days old. And now there's this new medium, radio, and this guy can literally paint this picture. And he does it in a way that's way more responsible than what today's media does. <laughs> you know, where where he's kind of telling you, hey, listen, shit's really bad. You're going to hear these bombs, but 
you know, I'm here, I'm reporting on it. I'll let you know what's going on. And he does it in that calm demeanor, right? And you're going to hear a little bit of that in the broadcast too as well. And I just think that that was interesting too, you know, how that's kind of like twisted completely around now. Like now they just want to rile you up as much as they can. So imagine it's 1938. Your family is gathered around a radio. You know, everybody's enjoying a Sunday evening. You just had uh, something to eat. And you switch stations and you hear this. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creature's that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. So if you were listening to the Mercury Theater from the start that night, it was pretty clear that it was a radio play. But if you were like most Americans in 1937, you were listening to the Chase and Sanborn Hour. And if you happen to be listening to the Jason Sanborn Hour and you turned away at the first musical interlude to see what else was on the radio, you would hear this. And for the next 37 minutes, you would be terrified. 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra.
morning, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. Now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I'll ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? Any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor. Would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see 
as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in the blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson... Could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Uh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, 
This is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of... Um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say? Uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious... Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmot, and then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was asleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to talk No, that's quite more? all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene... Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring souls now are venturing near the edge. Uh, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and the thing must be hollow. Keep those men back. Keep those idiots back. 
Take off! The top's loose! Look out, Dad! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling Someone out or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous discs. Are the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost a... heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me that... Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but it's face. It's, it's, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black, and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, those quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty to... Most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. 
their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, vice president in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. 
This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, 
placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here's a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Marstown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Protection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! After the rafters. Ship range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Hit that. Got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair Quick, it. Quick, get the range. Ship, 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. I can see the shell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still 
Can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Just the rain. Bombing plane V843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Volt commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Volt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Marstown cylinder, six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Plane circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. 200. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. Spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone! Hey. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. To X to L, calling CQ. To X to L, calling CQ. To X to L, calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X to L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? 
I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks, Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the... The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading... Wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. Rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet.
Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X, 2L. So these aliens, they decide to land in New Jersey. Uh, they pick Grover's Mills. Did you happen to check out how he had done that? They're making a screenplay, basically, for radio based off of the book. And what they're doing that's unique is they're planning everything out geographically. So even though it's broadcasting from New York, some of these first interviews are in Princeton, which is close by. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be talking to the actors at different locations post the Princeton interview. So they decide on Grover's Mill because it's not exactly too far from Princeton. It is believable that, you know, 10 minutes later after, you know, that these characters can be in different places. Right. Right. Yeah. Howard Koch was the script writer and he bought a map. He went to a gas station. Yeah. All right. That's where I was just going to go with it. (laughs) Yeah. He went, he he bought a map at a gas station. He picked Grover Grover's mills after he saw it's, it's, uh, you know, proximity to uh, Princeton. So that's how I got. It's pretty ingenious. I thought it was pretty ingenious. Yeah. These guys are like, I just can't underplay like how far ahead of their time. Oh these yeah. Guys were. Oh yeah. Cause uh, Wells as like, a storyteller. Oh, I mean, amazing. yeah. You, you might've, you touched on it a little bit, but with the Blair witch, but I mean, this is like the original mockumentary. And like you said, if you weren't there for those first two minutes and 18 seconds, then, uh, you know, it sounds very believable, especially, to somebody in 1938 who's yeah, just if listening if they to went back and listened to the Hindenburg broadcast, then, uh, you know, everything, even the, the reporter pretty much like you play the, the, the same tone, same calmness, but, you know, relaying like a, you know, a crazy scene. Here's an amazing fact about 1938 and radios. People bought radios, like people bought houses and then they bought radios before they bought furniture. And they bought, they actually bought more radios than they bought cars. I mean, like your radio was the centerpiece of your home, almost like your fireplace. It's where you're getting your entertainment. It was the idiot box of 1938, (laughs) you know, like TV became in the fifties, sixties and seventies and and everybody's home. But what was interesting in Grover's Mills is uh, there was a a group of YOs that went out and I guess they may have been, uh, a little bit um, sauced up that uh, Sunday night, and they actually shot up the water tower because it looked like <laughs> the tripod yeah, exactly. that comes out the way of they described. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, and Grover's <laughs> there's really nothing in Grover's Mill. There's just a, a mill. There was a mill, and it still stands to this day. It's a store now that you can you know drive by. But there is actually a, a monument at that yeah. landing site. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so they actually shot up the water tower. You know, the rolling good water tower and they shot it up, which is which is pretty interesting, right? I mean, that's how crazy this got. NPR did a show on this where they said that they're they kind of did the show and it was very well done. And then they went back 10 years later and they said, "Well, you know what? Uh somebody at Princeton did a bunch of studies on old newspapers and blah blah blah, and there really wasn't that much panic. The panic was overplayed." But that's not actually true. There was a fair amount of panic. I mean, people didn't like off their kids or anything, but it it got pretty crazy. This shooting up the water tower, there were some things that went on. Now, once again, it's 1938, so not everything gets reported on. But I found a clip, another clip that I want to play. And this is a clip 
of the operators from AT&T. And this is what they recall about this broadcast. So these are the actual operators. Now that board was, I would say, almost a half block long. Our board lit up when they announced that the the Martians were coming across the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> and that's when the excitement started. Some people said, "What were the, did I have a chance to see them? What were they like? What did they look like? I figured them little, little peoples. I don't mean foot tall. Um, little peoples. Green in color with a flowing hood. Have you seen any Martians? No. They've gone over to New York. Tonight the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living. Because they were crying and screaming and wanting to know if there, if there was a lot of gas, if there was uh, a lot of destruction, were there fires, is there a lot of shooting, are there bodies all around? But people believed it. They really believed it that night. And I think of the ones who were begging us to get connections to their families, to their husbands, to mothers and fathers before the world came to an end so they could just tell them they loved them. That's amazing. There's little blue-haired grandmas telling the stories in the 60s about it. You know, I kind of think maybe the the panic was underreported because people were just understated back then. And actually, anything, people would probably be embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, that they kind of fell for that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, I don't know where you were for 9-11. You know, were you in the military? No, I actually joined the day after. Oh, okay. Okay. That's an interesting story. We got to talk about that sometime. But, you know, where I where I was is I was going to work. I never forget hearing I had my Walkman, right? And my headphones on. And I was listening to Stern, which was still free back then. It was broadcast, you know, I was on WISP in Philly. And I remember when the first plane hit, and I'll never forget Howard Stern saying, "We're under attack." And I thought to myself, "Wow, he's lost it." He's crazy. My commute back then was probably like an hour and a half. I would take a train and then I would go up to Willow Grove and I would take the 22 bus up to work. So, you know, that's why I always had my radio with me. And I listened to the whole thing. I just thought, or just some commercial airplane that lost control or something along those lines. You know, it's unfortunate, but that's all it is. When I found out it was an attack and the way Stern presented it that day, that was amazing. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe it. I'll never forget you know, we're all sitting around and working. We're watching it because somebody went and got a TV, right? And there were still broadcast channels. So you could still, you know, watch it on broadcast channels with an antenna. And uh, I remember my boss, who was a hard ass, just turning to me and going, go home, go home, be with your family. You know, it was crazy. Yeah, it's surreal, man. Yeah. Like, what was your, what was your whole deal with it? I was actually out uh, playing soccer. And uh, we noticed people were pulled over, and we didn't know what was going on. We actually kept playing, and uh, someone came out and was like, "Yo, you guys got to hear this." And uh, we tuned into a, a local radio station and heard everything was going on. We pretty much busted out of there and drove home. And uh, by the time I got home, the second plane had already hit, and it was clear that you know it was an attack. And uh, that was a crazy day. I, it, yeah, it was, it was 
vivid, but also a blur at the same time because it happened so fast. Yeah, you almost were walking around like you were in in a daze. Like, yeah. I remember being yeah. in a daze. I remember Opie and Anthony would come on in the afternoon. Um, and I was listening to those guys. And, you know, once again, they were in New York, right? So they're talking about it and they're broadcasting about it. And I remember when the tower fell, I was listening to those guys and just how resolute everybody was. We were going to just pay these MFers back for this, you know? And, and that's what a lot of people must have been feeling. But, you know, 9-11 is a little bit different than this. <laughs> this was like a never-ending 9-11, right? So, you know, people are listening to this. It, it's not a one-off attack and, you know, you get to calm down and think about it. You know, these people are actually thinking the country's under siege. You know, the only other moment I can think about that was close to that was when the first Gulf War started. Because I'm 54, and I remember, I don't remember Vietnam. I was, you know, maybe, I don't know, when was I six years old when it was over? I, I don't know. I can't remember that much about it, obviously. But i never forget, if you remember the build-up to the first Gulf War, it was sort of kind of like you knew something was going to happen. You didn't know when, but you knew something was shaking loose. You know, troops were being moved around. Military might was being moved around. And then I was yeah, watching. I actually, I remember that, too, very vividly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, w- I was a young kid, and uh, we were actually in base. We were on base in Philly at that time, and my pops was gone. So, uh I just remember all the, the live coverage with all the missiles and everything like uh they yeah. were showing like the MVG footage of uh you know all the firing and I, I very it was crazy. remember that and being like, Oh man, like you know, it's my dad there right now, you know? Yeah, worried about that. I, I I remember well, first of all, I had just gotten my mortgage for my first home. <laughs> You know, and I was really freaked out about that. The way my mind works is, you know, always thinking about the worst possible scenario. I was so worried for the country. I was worried about my future personally. You know, worried about, you know, how is this going to affect our jobs? Because you don't know, right? You know, like you haven't been through war. You didn't know that it was just going to be some, you know, isolated war in the Middle East and we would come in, kick ass and take care of it, you know. But that night watching Peter Jennings, was who I was watching. And I was just sitting in front of the TV. It's one of those things that I, you know, my point with talking about all this is once I was pulled into that, had anybody came to me and said, Hey Mike, this is all bullshit. (laughs) You know, it's not really happening. This is actually a play or whatever. I, you wouldn't have been able to tell me that, you know, I I would have been locked in and there's something about humans that love a story and once we have a piece of information, it's very hard for us to let it go, you know? So, yeah. And I'm telling you, these guys, the production value on War of the Worlds, like even the original 38 version. Yeah. I uh, mean, they had sound effects. They had people screaming. They, they uh, talked for days over how they were going to do the unscrewing of the cap on the flying saucer. Yeah. And they eventually yeah. came up with a mason jar. Um, but they actually ran a microphone into the men's room (laughs) because they needed the echo and it was all tile and he he goes in there and he's unscrewing it and wells is like no it doesn't sound good enough so finally what they did is they actually stuck it in the toilet bowl (laughs) and unscrewed it so literally that that has to be done live 
right? Like it's not yeah, like yeah. now where I can record a sound effect or whatever and we could play it later. So somebody had to like run the line down the hallway into the bathroom. There's like this cord in the hallway. Nobody can trip over it. And this poor guy on time, they had a little red light. So he knew when to do it. And his little red light went on and he started slowly unscrewing this mason jar cap in the bathroom with the microphone and the mason jar into it in the toilet. Oh man, it's Walt. That's how far Orson Welles would go to tell a story. So yeah, when you're talking about, you know, the time that it, that it was done and you know, the, the realism, it really was the production value was fantastic. Uh, the other thing was the Mercury theater had no, no sponsors. They were still trying to get a sponsor. Yeah, which kind of worked out for them and, because they could skip commercial breaks. Exactly. So you, you didn't have, there was no commercial break. There was no opportunity to come on and say, hey, this is all, you know, just a story. The estimate was that 1.2 to 1.5 million people were fooled that night. And here's what happened. A lot of people, even on the West Coast, packed their cars and headed out of the cities and they created traffic jams on the highway systems because the highway systems are brand new it's not four lanes six lanes you know it's like two lanes (laughs) there's one lane going eastbound one lane going westbound maybe on a big highway you're lucky there's two yeah yeah it it became apparent more on i think it's really that first half which you know was believable like uh you know as everything was unfolding live yeah i think everything post grover's mill people maybe started putting two and two together right but uh Man, no, that first half though. Yeah, and and you know, the, and the station was getting so many calls, and the cops came eventually to the station and were like, "Look, you guys got to get on, and you know, you gotta, you gotta let them know it's it's fake." And eventually, they do. Very, very close to the end of the show, they get on and they they kind of let them let everybody know it's a play, you know. And and at the end, of course, Wells does his famous. Uh, notification that hey everybody you know and he kind of does it in a humorous way in that great voice of his and this is what that sounds like this is orson wells ladies and gentlemen out of character to assure you that the war of the world has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be the mercury theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo starting now we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. So there's Wells letting everybody off the hook. Um, so the aftermath. Of course, the newspapers take advantage of this, right? They're, they're like, they crucify Wells. They crucify radio. <laughs> it's a terrible medium. How dare they? You know, they panicked everybody because this is they're getting crushed, right? Their newspapers are getting crushed now news-wise by the radio because, you know, the radio is getting the news and they're putting it out faster than the newspapers can print it, right? So they're taking advantage of this. A lot of ways, you know, like cable news pokes fun at, you know, internet news sources nowadays. There was a, threats of a congressional investigation 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congress proposed a law requiring the FCC to review every radio drama script and approve it. Thankfully, that got nowhere. That was a massive yeah. overreaction. But once again, <laughs> you know, you think about the guys who ran the newspapers back then, J.P. Morgan. I'm sure they were like to their bought and paid for congressmen, you know, trying to get that stuff ramrodded through. There were many lawsuits were filed, claiming injury, and all of them were unsuccessful. For Wells, it was a, a windfall. Uh, Mercury Theater was on the map, uh, started getting some sponsorship. What was your thoughts on it? you think he did it on purpose? you think it was intentional? If it was, it was genius. Yeah. But uh, I, I think he, I kind of felt like he just really wanted to put on a good show. He didn't know it was going to blow up like that. Maybe or maybe, maybe he did, but I don't think he thought it was going to get the attention it did get. Just uh, it it was a book from forty years prior to that, and it got so much attention that you know it's 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 been done on the radio countless times since then. Uh, it's it's been two movies. I remember my pops used to watch the uh, original one from fifty three. All the time when I was a kid, he still watches it. Got a side story on that. Like I, I remember very vividly, my dad used to play a lot of pranks on us, like especially when we were smaller. But uh, <laughs> right. that probe that came down in the basement, uh-huh. like that happened in the uh, '53 movie, like before Tom Cruise too. Yeah, yeah, it does. You're right. But uh, yeah, he put a, a vacuum cleaner hose like through the window. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And man, I was done. Uh, it was just a regular back, vacuum cleaner hose, but that's all it took for me. Because I, I was pretty young at the time, and even just the 53 version had me pretty shook. But uh, yeah, that yeah. He, he played a lot of tricks, man. There was another movie called Invaders from Mars. I don't know if you remember the remake from the Oh, episode. I do. Yep, yep. I remember. But uh, he had uh, taped a screw on the back of his neck. <laughs> pretending to be like one of the pod people that had me, uh, I don't know, man, pretty traumatic shit for a kid. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was, that, uh, that war of the worlds, man, was something we watched all the time when we were kids. Yeah. Like the old, the B movie version. Yeah. My mother was the big prankster in our house. She did a lot of that kind of stuff that your dad was doing. Um, you know, it rubbed off on me. I do it to this day. I still do it to Tracy. Yeah. Same. I'll put a mask on, she'll come up the stairs, I'll scare the shit out of her. I still do that stuff. The funniest was um my dad used to this is a good my dad used to come home um from work, uh working night shift, second shift, and he always used to hang his coat in the basement. Um, you know, like the the cellar way, we call it here in the city. It's that little area where you start to go down the cellar and it's for whatever reason people want to hang a hundred coats there. So, you know, you almost fall yeah. down the steps. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of the way we stored them, right? And my buddies had bought me a Rowdy Roddy Piper cutout. It was a six-foot-tall cutout. <laughs> <laughs> and I placed it there before I went to bed. And I heard my father come home. He comes in the door. Hear him unzip his jacket. Hear him open up the ba- ba- the basement door. And I hear him go, what the And bang. And it, <laughs> like I, I hear it go flying down the steps. And he starts screaming, Michael. Yeah, it's a, it, the prankster thing rubbed off on me. Um, oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> so you got this crazy thing that goes on. It can never happen again, right? I mean, it, it couldn't be repeated. You would think. 
and it, and it couldn't get worse, right? But it does. It happens again in 1949 in Ecuador. So it happens in a little town in Ecuador called Quito. And they decided to emulate, I'm going to just read this word for word. They decided to emulate the master and recreate their own war of the world. But instead of provoking an aha moment, if not an explosion of fear among the citizens, the experiment had an effect never expected by its producers. At the time, Radio Quito, which was located in the offices of the newspaper El Comercio, had great prestige as a serious and reliable news media uh, network on the radio. The plan of the station's director, oh, this is pretty wild, uh, considering that it uh, was something we talked about in the Patreon show. This guy's name was Leonardo Paez. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, was the bro- yeah was the broadcast a fake uh, without even his own colleagues knowing about it? Except for Chilean actor Eduardo Alcaraz, who was an expert in radio soaps and was going to put a voice to the very loud production with a live performance by Benitez of Valencia, who was like a, a real popular singing group back then. So they were like the uh, you know the 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 musical interlude at the beginning. Um. So these keto guys, they did this for days. They had advertised in the paper uh, little stories here and there about people seeing, you know, strange things in the sky. They really played this thing up and planted stories in a newspaper. And they did it without any disclaimer whatsoever at the beginning or at the end. And this, <laughs> and why they thought this was a good idea uh, was beyond me. Um, but basically what happened was they did such a good job with it. Not only did they fool the people in the town, but they actually fooled the military and the military started mobilizing out to this point. So the military and the police are mobilizing out to this point where these things are landing and spreading out this deadly poisonous gas and they're going to go get them. Right? (laughs) So, they go out and they're looking for it. And of course they get there and there's nothing there. Um, and the word starts filtering back to people in the town and people are really upset packing up their cars. They're leaving all this other good stuff. You know, they, they fooled the military, they fooled the police and the people get downright pissed off. So what do they do? They march on the station (laughs) and they're, they want the head of Roberto Paya. So they actually go to the building, which is once again, a newspaper building. Um, and they set the building on fire and, <laughs> and they're actually going to burn these guys out. You know, first they're asking them to come out. And of course they're not that stupid. Right. So they don't come out. You know, they actually start burning the building and Roberto Pai or Leonardo Paez, he gets on, you know, the horn and he's calling the military and the, the police and they're like, Hey bud, you're on your own. So they won't come and get them. Cause they're, 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 you know, pissed off about being, having the, the wool pulled over their eyes. The fire is getting hotter and hotter. And Piaz actually loses his girlfriend and his nephew in the blaze. They, they both perish. He goes to the back of the building and hang jumps. The, the pipe from the railing was so hot from the fire that he had scars on his hands afterwards. He takes off 
they're still, you know, burning down this building. They're breaking the, the windows. They're going in there to kill everybody in the building because of this. And he actually escapes. And he heads to another country. <laughs> and he, he lives in exile for years over this. And actually, you know, the NPR uh, podcast that talked about the War of the Worlds had an interview with his daughter. Um, that you guys can go listen to. And he was scarred for life with his hands. He had lost, you know, people, loved ones to this whole thing. And, you know, he lived with that the rest of his life. And, you know, he, they were talking to her about it. Like, did he talk about it a lot? She goes, well, yeah, he would talk about it if you asked him about it. But other than that, he was really proud at how realistic it was. <laughs> so even after all that, he was still proud at the fact that he had pulled the wool over every, everybody's eyes. Man. Yeah. Right. I honestly, I didn't know all that. They actually closed the radio station down for two years. So, you know, it may happen in another country, you know, cause maybe there might be some people down there who didn't hear about it, but, if for sure shit can't happen again in the U.S., can it? I think it will. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically in 1968 <laughs> in Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, it was uh, the guys knew basically how, how it affected people in the past and uh, wanted permission to do it. The station, which I cannot recall the call numbers of right now, no, I've seen it so many times. KB something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was a popular station at the time. I think it was rock. And right. I think it was like generated towards the younger audience. So a lot of those guys didn't know about, you know, the, uh, the original broadcast or probably what happened in Ecuador. So it was, it was basically newer generation. Right. They had no idea. And that's why I think this thing will keep, you know, keep perpetuating itself over the years. But yeah, it was 68. The, they got permission from the station. It was under the stipulation that it would be announced. They would put it in the paper ahead of time. Right. That it was just a radio play. They would announce through the show at the beginning and actually through the show that this was just a play. Yeah, didn't they do it about six or seven times or something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, it was, uh, if anything, they were, I'd, I'd say, overly cautious about it. But right. they were still putting it out there to the people. And, uh, again, they... Changed a few things around, and obviously it wasn't Princeton or Grover's Mill anymore. It was uh, area, the area around Buffalo. But the effect it had was, you know, it was also mass panic again. Um, you had the police up in arms. You had a uh, fire dispatch uh, all over the place trying to respond to this thing. And uh, it was so close to the Canadian border, you had the Mounties actually post up at a uh, – at the, at the peace bridge, bridge on the other side of the uh, yeah. yeah, they were they right were at there. the other end of the peace bridge to hold off to hold off the aliens from the invading Mounties. Canada, <laughs> right? And this is this is amazing because it's with them announcing it six times during the hour that hey guys, this is you know a recreation. It's just a just a play for for Halloween night. Crazy, yeah, but it, in this scenario, like you couldn't you couldn't really blame the broadcasters of the station because they well ahead of time, like they, they, like I said, they didn't even put it in the newspapers. So it was advertised well ahead of time. 
and through the show what was happening. And it, it didn't matter. It was still a mass panic. And there was uh, some initial pushback, but I think it was more accepted at that point. And that station, I guess, uh, they actually do it every Halloween now. Yeah, and, there, you know, it, people have to understand this about the Buffalo radio market. It was a big market for a couple different reasons. Number one, you know, they got a lot of talent that came out of New York City. And if you're broadcasting in Buffalo, you're being heard in Toronto, right? And Toronto is a huge, huge market. Exactly. Like if you go to Canada, you go through Toronto like we did to go up to Algonquin Park. You're amazed at how big, big the city is and how many people actually live there. It's a good percentage of of Canada's population that lives there, you know, and, and in Montreal. Um, so this is heard in both those spots. That's why Buffalo is such a huge radio market. A lot of national sponsorship. A lot of really good DJs came out of Buffalo. So it was a well heard station. And here's the other thing about that station. I looked at a, a plot of how far it broadcast because they had a tremendous transmitter. You were able to hear that. And because also the, the airways were less crowded back then, there wasn't as many stations as there are now, which is one of the problems with radio broadcast radio. You could hear that down in Maryland and West Virginia. I saw that and I was like, wow. You know, so yeah, if that's, you, that's crazy. yeah. So if you were tuned in right at the right time, you know, and you didn't catch one of those things, you know, it's amazing, but you know what? It, it's interesting. It just goes to show you that people hear what they want to hear. Yeah. And uh, I'll be honest with you. Like it's over time. People, I think younger generations aren't going to know what it is. And I was thinking just doing the research. I'm like, this could totally be a podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, we could have a special where we're doing war worlds. Yeah, but uh, I think it's it's gonna be it's just gonna be a phenomenon that you know just perpetuates itself over over the years. I mean, it's it's already been, uh, you know, two major films. Blair Witch was done. TV series, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Blair Witch was based off of this, so your whole genre of yeah, yeah, all, all the found footage movies, all the found footage, you would, you would have yeah, that comes from wow, that comes from War of the Worlds. Pretty amazing. It's crazy. It was uh, super interesting. There's there's plenty of mediums where you can actually listen to the original broadcast, where you can listen to multiple Buffalo broadcasts, whether it's the original 68 version or any of the following ones. Yeah. Uh, I listened to 68 and 71. I also listened to the original a handful of times over my life. But uh, There is an interesting, man. there's a great documentary on YouTube about the Buffalo original broadcast. Um, that's, yeah, it was that's 50 amazing years later. Yeah. And actually, yeah, the, that was actually really good. <laughs> yeah. The actor from there's a sitcom. My wife watches. It's one of those girly sitcoms. It's called mom. It's about the woman, the, the woman and her daughter that are in recovery, um, from alcoholism and drugs and all that stuff. But there's an actor in there that plays, he's in a wheelchair, um, but he's a Buffalo guy and he's in that documentary talking about it you know, what it was like in Buffalo. It's a, it's a great documentary. It's on YouTube. It's free. Uh, also, like you mentioned, if you want to listen to the original war of the worlds broadcast, um, that I just played for you tonight in bits and pieces, you can listen to the whole thing literally on the war of worlds, uh, Wikipedia page. It's there. Uh, there are no copyrights left on it because it was done in 1938. So you can literally, yeah, it's not a long listen. It's only about a 
No. What, just under an hour. Yeah, like 56 minutes, 54 minutes, something along those lines. And it's it's it carries itself along pretty good, you know, until it gets touchy-feely there at the end about, you know, mankind and how they're going to rebuild and all I'm that good kind stuff. Of that's even good. Right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's even uh, good, though. I mean, that part of it's even good. Yeah, because, uh, you know, what ends up killing off the aliens isn't us. <laughs> yeah. It's... Yeah, it's microbes. It ain't our bombs or our guns. It's, uh, you know, it's It's a virus. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's, it's a microbes that they weren't, they weren't, uh, you know, ready for. Wrapping it up, you know, our final thoughts here. It really is interesting how people take in media and how, how they can be so easily duped. People love a story. And once they stick their fangs in it, it's almost like, it's almost like a drug. Like they can't get off of it. They just have to keep. They just had it, like it wouldn't have mattered if they did the 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 disclaimer in the Buffalo broadcast ten times. People once once they panic, and it just goes to show you not to panic. But once you panic, you're done. You just act all lizard brain and you do dumb shit, and that's it. And that's that's exactly what it, you're right. You could play it again next Halloween and do it again in another area, and it would it would suck somebody in again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, you know, what if that was happening right now? What if, what if, to the Stars Academy was just, uh, what if this was just all a long game? But I mean, I think there's important lessons to be learned here. You know what I mean? Just, uh, I've always heard, you know, trust but verify. Leave nothing you hear and half of what you see, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. Lonesome and hungry. Travel this land Searching for some place called home Faithless, nameless Known only by faith Destiny finds me no more Shall I roam Thursdays I travel on Dreaming of water and wine Beside a green meadow I stop for rest Where gentle brook winds through the pines Standing eyes blinded by God's golden water My Savior was but a facade And sip and sand Exhausted, I fall to my knees. I can't find the strength to go on. Vision showed me the path as I sleep. I find my way with the dawn. Standing eyes blinded by God's golden water, my Savior was but a facade. Sand from a pool full of promise. My oasis was just a mirage. 
whisper my name I'm all alone in the night How can a place so empty and cold Be filled with such glory Lonesome and hungry, I travel this land Searching for some place called home Faithless, nameless, known only by faith Destiny finds me no more, shall I? 